Welcome to the Leading Real Change podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, an expert in workplace culture change. From my unique background in behavior science, public health, and community advocacy, I help corporate leaders with evidence-based individual team and organizational change to create thriving workplace cultures for all. In the Leading Real Change podcast, I interview dedicated and passionate change makers about their careers, how they lead change, and what leaders can do today to make a difference, to build healthy, inclusive workplace cultures for all. I'm excited to share these examples of real workplace change with you. You'll learn about effective strategies that are working and how to overcome real barriers to change that challenge us every day. I hope you'll feel inspired and more confident to keep leading change in your workplace. Please share this podcast with other HR, DEI or ERG leaders who you know are working hard but are struggling to have an impact and need more support to effectively create a thriving workplace culture for all today. I am Laura Hamill. I am an organizational psychologist. So I have a PhD in organizational psychology, which I don't even know how I happened on it. I'm so lucky that I found it. (laughs) It's so interesting. It's so fun. I own a consulting business called Paris Phoenix Group, and that is named after my kids, my kids' middle names. So my son's name is Griffin Paris, and my daughter's name is Skylar Phoenix. And I started this consulting business a long time ago when they were little, when they were just really pretty tiny. And so I named it after them. I focused on the intersection of HR and science, (laughs) how that comes together. And so I do have these two wonderful children that aren't little anymore. So I have a son who's 22 and a daughter who's 18. And now I'm an empty nester with my husband. It's just a wild situation, right? We have a lot more freedom and time on our hands. But I do have a golden retriever who is my third child. <laughs> he, he is bearing the brunt of all my love that I don't get to give to my kids every day. So lots of hugs and kisses to that dog. Yeah, so I feel very fortunate. Also, I'm running my consulting business, really focused on culture formation, culture transformation. And I love it. It's just like my favorite topic. And I'm writing a book about culture. Yeah. Great. And we're going to get into that. Oh, I'm so excited. I love how you're describing your life. (laughs) And I'm so glad you shared what the business name was from, because I was wondering and I was like, I probably missed something really significant in the world that I'm supposed to know. So I'm not going to ask that question and then look ignorant. (laughs) It's your kids' middle names and what amazing names they have. Oh my God, they sound like film stars. That's hilarious. Yeah, it is funny. It is funny to have cities as the name of my consulting business, right? At one time I had somebody call me and say, is this the Paris office or the Phoenix office? I'm like, uh, not quite like that. 
I was thinking the same, so I'm not surprised. So tell us a little bit more. How did you get into this journey? If you said you fell into an organizational psychology PhD, tell us about the journey and tell us how you did starting a consultancy with young children. Oh my gosh. It's a long story because I've been alive for a long time. Thank goodness. I'll try to do the short version. I got really lucky when I went to college because I took an introduction to psychology class and I fell in love with it. My first year, freshman year, when I think back, this is crazy. In the back of our textbook was this little section that said careers in psychology. And one of them said business psychology. And I've never heard of that before. And I read it and it was just a tiny little introduction. And the last sentence said, this is a great career for women. Why wouldn't they all be great careers for women? Why are you calling this one out per se? But I'm like, I like psychology and I'm a woman. I can do that. So I started to study that and figure out more about that. And my college didn't have any programs in organizational psychology. It was very clear I had to go to graduate school. And so I talked to my advisor and he said, don't do it. It's a fad, bad idea. I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is a very kind of traditional clinical psychology school. And so anyway, long story, I didn't listen to that. I went and talked to some professors out at another university. And I look back at that and go, how did I do that? Like that, I don't know how I did that, but I went to another university and asked for some time for the head of the department and he gave it to me. And he taught me all about it and said, your advisor doesn't know what he's talking about. So anyway, I ended up going right from undergrad to graduate school. So seven years of graduate school, right after four years of undergrad, which another thing I'm like, oh, and by the way, zero money. Like I grew up really poor. Everything I did was on scholarship, student loans, Pell Grants, So it was a big deal to commit to seven more years of school. But in retrospect, I'm just so glad I did. I loved graduate school. So I had a great experience in graduate school. And then I got my first internship in Washington, D.C., worked in what was called selection research. So studying the ways to create tools and tests to select people into organizations and then how you validate those. And That was quite an experience. It was very technical in nature and I learned a ton, but boy, I got quite cynical about how much variance you're actually explaining in job performance. These validity coefficients that weren't awesome. A lot of the testing, this isn't a secret, but a lot of these tests don't do very much better than flipping a coin. And so that was a really interesting experience. I learned a ton, but I decided that's not for me. I'm going to go and try this other job. I worked at Allstate Insurance for a little while, focused more on employee engagement. I did not love that culture and ended up going to Microsoft. And so I was at Microsoft. We were just starting this group called People Research, and it was fascinating. I remember when I first started thinking, I'm never going to work anywhere else. This is the coolest ever, coolest culture. And I was there for about 10 years, but that's when about the time I had kids, And then it became not so cool anymore. It was a really hard place to work, a technology company. And this was a long time ago, right? So this was in the 90s. And it was pretty stressful. The expectations were really high. The amount of work that I was expected to do, the amount of being in the office, there was no like flexibility. You leaving at five o'clock was frowned upon, right? This was a situation where you felt like you had to get out and nobody see you. It was awful. (laughs) It really was having two small kids during that time and being a leader of my team. 
It was really a hard time. I look back and I really actually can't believe all the things I did. It was a lot. And anyway, towards the end of that, I got diagnosed with some autoimmune diseases. <laughs> Your body's going to tell you when it ain't working, this whole stress situation is not working. And it sure did. And so that was one kind of message I got after being there for 10 years. My son was old enough to start telling me the impact I was having on him. That was heartbreaking. I remember he was, gosh, four. And he looked at me one day and said, mommy, why do you worry all the time? I remember the look on his face and I was devastated, right? I'm like, oh my God, I, I had no idea that he could see that, right? And so that happened, my health. And then I was at a point where I am not loving my work anymore. I was starting to see some of the cultural issues come out of like all this stuff I had been excited about that was cycling back and just are we really changing things? Are we really making a difference? And so all that together, I think was my version of burnout, right? It was really a moment where I got really clear that I had to change something. I remember I was walking on the beach and I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm changing. And so I quit. I quit my job and started my own consulting business. And that's where the Paris Phoenix group came from. It's like, these kids are too precious to me. My life is too precious to me to continue in this kind of current state of affairs of being pretty miserable. So I started that business with really low expectations, thinking, I don't care what I'm going to do. As long as I'm doing it on my own terms, I'll do anything <laughs> as long as somebody can pay me so I can just make this change. And it ended up being the coolest situation. I got these projects, no clue. I thought I was going to be doing kind of the grunt work of organizational psychology, which is a lot of number crunching and reading thousands and thousands of comments and things like that. I ended up doing these really strategic projects. I ended up helping to start a software company, which was mind-blowing, called Limeade. I ended up working on almost 40 of Microsoft's acquisitions. I worked back with them on developing culture assessments around the companies that were being acquired and comparing it to Microsoft's culture. So anyway, it ended up being way better than I thought it was going to be. Fast forward, I know I'm telling the long version <laughs> And so then the next decade, after I did that for about eight years of just really fun projects, I went to Limeade. Limeade had been one of my actually very first customer in my consulting practice. It was just the CEO. And he asked me to come and be the chief people officer, which I had never done before, which was quite a learning experience. And then I started a group called Limeade Institute, which then I became the chief science officer also. So really focused on doing the research around well-being, employee engagement, burnout, organizational culture to help evolve that product. I left there. I was there for about eight years. And so I left there last year to really focus on some other things I wanted to do with my career. Probably another form of burnout, realizing this other stage of my life where it's, wait, there's not eternity, right? And there's not this infinite time that I have. What else do I want to do with my career? besides what I was doing then. And so I got really clear. That was another big learning process and a time where it was pretty hard and stressful to think about what do I want to do next? And that's where the book came forward, the podcast I work on, and some other things that I just, I'd always wanted to teach a class at the University of Washington. So all of those things have come true. Thank goodness. It's just pretty miraculous. That is such a fantastic story. And I'm sure my listeners can understand why I wanted you as a guest. It's so fantastic. 
And I do love how you called out some of those symptoms there that you were experiencing, real illness symptoms and the cynicism you were feeling towards not making change. That's totally symptoms of burnout. And then the thing that you were seeking was the autonomy, because again, lack of autonomy is something that creates burnout. There's so many different faces of burnout, but one of them is when you have that lack of purpose. So I love that you have this example of now shifting and really being intentional of what am I going to do with my time now and wanting that purpose back. So those are all great examples. And just, I really, I just was thinking about something when you were saying that is the intersection with your physical health and your mental health, I think is such an important thing that for so long, we just ignored that. And as I've aged, I become more and more clear about how intertwined it is. So when I was going through this time where I was really contemplating what I wanted to do next, I was also starting menopause. And it was humongous how that affected me. My lack of sleep was, I don't even know, again, look back and like, how did I even function? How did I even make it through that? It was so hard. And so anyway, I'm such a believer in that connection between what happens in your body and what happens in your head. And I'm seeking to understand that more for myself. Do you have any specific practices now that really help you? Yeah, a whole bunch. And the word practice is so important, right? Because it's not like I have this figured out. It's just that I have real intention of focusing on it every day. So some of the things that I'm trying really hard to do, it's hard, but I'm trying really hard to not have a day that looks like 12 hours of meetings, right? I'm trying to think about what's the time of day where I can actually be the most productive and with my work and then have another part of the day where I actually can also be me and just not do work. And that's a really hard thing. I've always been a go-getter, somebody who really has all these ideas and things they want to do, but I just need to value myself more and create that time. So some of the things that I do are take my time in the morning. I went for decades where there was no taking my time in the morning. You don't take your time in the morning when you have little kids. So now I get up and I have probably an hour and a half where I'm taking my time and I'm drinking a cup of coffee and drinking my protein drink. I'm just taking my time. Another huge thing that I've added that I've learned is transcendental meditation. I took a TM class and it sounds a little out there and hard to understand, but if you look at the website, I think it's like just tm.org. It's pretty darn convincing. It's just a simple process and it's a commitment to just being quiet two times a day. And it has been miraculous for me. I've been able to really see that connection, feel the connection in my body with what's going on in my head and be able to really calm myself down. And when you do that, when you calm yourself down a couple times a day, it just builds those reserves, right? It just makes you feel like, okay, I've got a little bit of respite, right? And then I can go back. Um, But it's just been a huge change for me. Another thing that has happened over COVID, my husband and I discovered this. It's so simple, but we just take a one hour walk together every day with the dog. So in the evening, it's like clockwork. I mean, every once in a while, we'll skip a day, but most of the time we do that. And it's been great for the dog. (laughs) It's been great for getting out and being in nature. And it's also been good for our marriage just to have a little time to talk. And it's not like it's this beautiful love story every time we're out walking together. It's not, it's like we're talking all these beautiful romantic things at all, but it's just time for us to 
be together, right? And not have that many distractions. And there's a whole bunch of other things, but one last one I'll share is taking the time to actually make myself food. Again, sounds so simple, but what I used to do is grab just something from the refrigerator and eat it while I'm working. And now I think about, oh, what do I want for breakfast? Oh, let's make that. Oh, let's sit down and eat it. And that's helped a lot for me of just like making that time to do something that's really important for my body. So there are a whole bunch of things like that that I feel are so different from what they used to be that I think have helped me a lot. That's so great. Those are fantastic examples. And those are perfect. Those are the ones from public health that we all recommend. And actually, those are the ones too, for example, that wellness officers recommend, and that in some ways drive me crazy, because they just make it out that it's so simple to do. But actually, all these things you're doing take so much practice, time and effort, building those habits and having that commitment with your husband and your dog really to do it every day because the dog reminds you, right? It's like those things are difficult. So that's why I get frustrated. I know those are the things we recommend from public health, but I also know how few people succeed in doing them. It's like less than 10% of the population. But look, I'm not working in a corporate job. That's why I can do it. I'm 100% clear about if I was working in a corporate job, there's no way I could do those things. And that's what makes me sad. It's really hard to work in a quote unquote regular job and be able to do the things you need to take care of yourself. And that that's the part that makes me super sad. And I'm with you hundred percent. And I get pissed off, honestly, about quote unquote wellness initiatives that put it all the onus on the employee. And so from the beginning, when I was focused on Limeade, I really tried to get us to talk about well-being versus wellness, right? Instead of the just physical health part of it and the stuff that's just focused on helping the company save money. What if we actually talked about well-being from the perspective of quality of life, right? But from the beginning, we talked about the idea of organizational support. And a lot of the research we did in Limeade Institute was showing that you can't improve well-being in an organization if you don't have organizational support. And there's multiple levers to that organizational support. It's for sure the manager and how your relationship with your manager and whether or not they see you as a human being and they want you to be well and take time for yourself. But it's the leaders of the organization and the role models that they may or may not be around this and how much they actively encourage it. But the culture part is one of the parts that I got the most excited about is thinking about which aspects of the culture need to be in place in order for well-being to be real in an organization. The culture piece is really where I have landed. It seems to me that anything that an organization is trying to do to improve, you got to be really intentional about culture. So that's why anything that you think of that's important the cultural alignment and cultural clarity is just key. So go into that, please. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more, you know, because you, you talked about some of these levers of change, managers, leaders, and true commitment to really wanting somebody else to experience well-being. But yeah, talk to us about what that takes to do culture change. And I think we know this, right? We know that the culture has to be aligned. We know culture matters. We've experienced that in our own lives, how much organizational culture matters. But what's so hard about it is that culture is not well understood 
and for sure not well practiced in most organizations. There's so many studies. There's a Glassdoor study that said that culture and values are the number one most important thing to employees, but most companies don't have somebody who clearly is driving the culture work, who talks about a culture all the time. Some of the other things that were on their list, you have whole departments around them, but somehow we don't have real clarity and accountability around culture. And the more and more I study it, it becomes obvious. The reason why this is so hard is because just the very nature of culture, right? It's so abstract. It's hard for us to get our hands wrapped around. It's hard for us to pinpoint. We don't have a language for it. It's unconscious, right? Because culture is influencing us all the time and we don't even realize it. Once we start in an organization, we just become part of it, right? We can't even see how it's influencing us. And there's just so many aspects of culture and the complexity really of the different cultural attributes, the profile of culture, the strength of those cultural attributes, how it's different for every single organization. There's all these aspects of culture that make it almost feel impossible to do something about. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is I'm so intrigued by how elusive it is, but I also really believe that there are ways you can operationalize it. There are ways you can grab a hold of it and architect it and be intentional about it. It has a lot to do with understanding the experience of culture and how important it is to go way beyond values. <laughs> and I'm happy when an organization has articulated what it values. That's a great start. But oh boy, what I see in practice is then most companies stop there or they'll do a couple performative kinds of things, right? There's a couple things that they'll do a couple awards once a year, but the reality of the culture in the day-to-day is what I'm talking about and how much that actually plays out. That's where I just see so much opportunity for improvement is that intersection of this abstract idea of culture and the practice of culture and how we can actually dig in and really help organizations do better. So that's what I'm focused on. And I really feel like my experience as the head of HR, being a chief people officer and understanding the science of it, like those two things have to marry, right? We have to really get into it and dig in. I'm so excited about that. And I think your point, when you described the Microsoft people research, I was like, oh God, that would have been so great. But then as you described these other roles, we are having people as officers now, but we don't have a, like you said, a culture department or a culture officer. And I agree. It's about how do you go beyond these individual people to create these social norms that drive everything. Because again, I think that's so important. Values are not operationalized. And for me, it's what are the behaviors and the decisions you make every day? So the behaviors that you demonstrate importantly out loud, because we have this whole quiet quitting issue. And I totally understand it's not safe for some people to out loud say they're putting boundaries on their workouts. But that's what exactly we want leaders to do. Those are ways that you operationalize values of health. It's those daily behaviors. So yeah, tell me more about that. Because that's also how I see systems change happening. Because everyone has these abstract ideas of systems. And it's no systems are the everyday decisions we make as people and the behaviors we do that reinforce the system and the status quo and all these things. It's in our hands. That to me is so empowering. Yes, completely, or frustrating or empowering, whichever day you're on, right? 
Yeah, it is possible. I have this intentional culture circle idea that just tries to operationalize all the components of actually making culture come to life. And the first one is around just creating really clarity of the vision of the culture you want to have. And it needs to be connected to the purpose. It needs to be connected to the strategy. But the second part of that is behavioralizing the values. And that's a lot of the work I do in my consulting practice. I'm working with a couple different companies right now on how do you actually put into place a reasonable set of behaviors that make, somebody just used this the other day, make the implicit explicit How can you be really clear about this aspect of our values to say, here are the four behaviors that are the most important and the most like specific to us and what we're trying to achieve. And when you can do that, boy, it helps so much to think about how you then can scale, right? You can teach people about those behaviors. One of the things I like to do in that work is to do a small set for employees add a few for managers and add a few for leaders, right? To create this progression of behaviors. Because when you do that, you can start to have that as the foundation of your career framework. This is what it looks like then to become a manager and become a leader here when we can behavioralize that. So it brings the culture to life, but it also creates like a career ladder. So that's just getting specific about one approach that you can take. But every time I do this, I involve the people who we're talking about, right? I don't sit in a room and think about those behaviors or I don't just ask the CEO, what do you think? I actually go and do work, focus groups and interviews with people in the jobs and talk to them about here in your organization with this purpose and vision and mission in mind, what does that look like? How can we do that in that particular value in a way that's helpful? So I spend a lot of time doing those kinds of things and it's fulfilling, right? To talk to people about this because they can see, they see the value in being clear about what we're expecting. And I agree. I love that sort of ladder approach. This important role of role models, because again, it's what are the behaviors that we need to see? And then who do we need to see them in? Because some of the times we don't even know what those behaviors are. And I think back to your sort of support that you said that organizations don't provide for these lifestyle behaviors, wellness behaviors. But I think that's the biggest thing that people don't understand about behavior change. We need so much support to create behavior change, right? We assume it's all willpower. And then that's what we focus on. And then we beat ourselves up because, again, we've got another failed New Year's resolution or whatever. But it's not about that. It's about actually doing this with other people around us who can help us, who can give us positive reinforcement, who can help us move in the right direction if we need it, give us the time, whatever it is, the accountability. That's what we're meant to do. We're meant to do behavior change as groups of people together. I think that is one of the biggest kind of myths or things that I see play out in organizations is this belief that it's that individual employee, that if I just hire the right one with the right motivation, with the highest levels of engagement, that's all I need to do. And it's so sad. I remember I was hired for a job because I had a twinkle in my eye. I'm like, you think that twinkle is going to be that or something, right? That's going to make me not do magical things here, have these high levels of performance. And first of all, there's so many levels of wrong with that, but it's such a misguided idea to think it's just, we have to hire better people, different people, more motivated people, more engaged people. 
And then everything, all our performance issues are going to be solved. It's so clearly the systems in the organization. We know that research shows that, but I think it's 70% of the variance in performance is because of the system, not the individual. And we have such a flipped mindset about that in organizations. And I think this is one of the reasons why we're seeing such a focus on burnout. The analogy of engagement is the engine of your organization, right? It's how things happen. It's where the energy is. And well-being is the fuel to that, right? It's the fuel to your engine. It's how you keep going. It's how you sustain. And I love that combination of engagement and well-being. But I think what's happened before all the things that have happened in the last few years We were just talking about engagement as more hyper-engagement. Let's hire people who are engaged. Even some of the crazy reporting we would do around engagement would be like, show me the percentage of people who are highly engaged. And that's who I write is those people, not those people who aren't engaged. We haven't talked about, gosh, what is the system that's surrounding these people to make sure that they can be engaged? And I'm loving that we're talking more about how well-being is a requirement, right? That we really care about people as human beings if we want them to have that feeling of engagement. And what I'm adding, I hope I'm trying to add to that equation is the idea of culture underneath all of that, right? You have to have a culture that supports it. So to follow on the kind of engine, gasoline analogy, think about culture as like the road we're taking, right? And we have these guardrails that say, how are we going to be together? What is this road going to be together as we are trying to go to this place of this ultimate purpose or this set of goals we're trying to achieve? I hate using a car analogy for a human thing we're talking about, but to me, it's like the simplest way of thinking about how this stuff comes together and just how important the system is for our employees to be able to have them feel that great feeling of being engaged. Worry we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Of get rid of engagement because it's done such a bad thing to people. And really engagement is such a wonderful feeling when you feel it, right? I don't want to get rid of that. I just want to do it better. That's such helpful insight too, because I have had people say, yeah, we need to measure more than engagement now and it's other things. But I think that there's so many myths there. One, like you said, that actually happiness creates productivity, not productivity creates happiness. So Jennifer Moss was very good at making that very clear. Well-being comes first, then you get productivity from that well-being, not the other way around. And I think there's a real misunderstanding, and I know there's a debate in the scientific literature about this too, that engagement is the opposite of burnout, but it's not. You can be extremely engaged and burning out. So if they're going for high engaged, oh, maybe actually those are people that are most burnt out because they've given so much. They could be misdiagnosing the whole thing. Completely. And that's so sad about burnout to me. It's your most committed employees, right? The ones who are willing to sacrifice everything and give their all, they're the ones who burn out. And to just give up on them and to say, oh, whatever negative thing. I remember in the olden days where, you know, people who were burning out, you just fired them, right? You didn't really try to understand the context of what was going on. And definitely the organization didn't own up to its role in that. And I still see that happening quite a bit. I was prepping for this big presentation that I was going to do with this company. They hired me to talk about burnout. And so I drafted the um, presentation. I showed it to them and they said, we love it. Except can you just cut slides eight through 11 out? And I looked at it and that was where it was about the organization's role in burnout. 
I'm like, nope. I'm not doing a presentation on burnout that puts it all on the employee that doesn't say the really big role that organizations play in causing burnout. So I'd rather just not do this presentation. And then they changed their mind and they had me put it back in because I wasn't going to do that. It's just wrong. So that's what I want to talk about next, because I think that is one of the biggest barriers. And with all the burnout solutions, it's been self-care, wellness perks. There are some things you might need from that access to mental health services, for example. But we know that employees are not receiving that in the way that CEOs are thinking they should be. And they want to see organizational change, because especially when you take a vacation or extended sabbatical, guess what you do? You come back and you say, oh, it's this place. It's not me. But it seems like companies are so afraid to admit their responsibility and role in this. So how do we shift that? I feel like somehow culture is that key that you can get around the Because again, it's the same problem. If we point to individuals, this is your responsibility, it doesn't work out. And if we point to the company and say this is your responsibility, nobody wants to hear that. So how do we change that without, like, we always call them stealth interventions in health, where basically you are changing something, but without that conscious attack on you as an organization or you as an individual being wrong. And that's definitely one of the behavioral approaches I take. I'd rather than say to people, oh, as a leader, you're not doing these things right. You need to change it. I say, I want to see you role model these things for your employees, right? So it's not that you're not doing anything. You just need to play a role as a role model. And so I think that shift gets people away from the defensive and everything. How do you think we can change that? What are you seeing? I think that's smart to think about, to help people see the positive that they can do to make that more supported. What I think is fascinating is all of the things that Christine Maslock showed that are organizational in nature that cause burnout, right? There's so much underlying the total overwork. And I think it's so interesting how we just dismiss that one, right? Like, oh, of course it's overwork, right? Everybody's overworked. That is weird to me, right? That we don't actually think about job design. We don't think about workforce capacity anymore. We used to talk about things like, what is the design of the job? How does it intersect with other jobs? Is this a reasonable job that can be accomplished in a reasonable amount of time? I feel like it's just a a pile on that we do now. We just pile on and pile on until people say, I can't do it anymore. There's not a lot of intention around job design. And that is, to me, one of the biggest things that we just gloss over. I don't see very many HR leaders talking about that, like thinking about how do we create humane jobs? (laughs) So that's one thing. And a lot of the research I've done around the biggest stressors of work, it's that. It's just the sheer quantity and amount and the level of expectation that is not in check at all. There's no kind of bounce. Um, So that's a big part of this whole equation. I think there's also relatedly role clarity. I think that role clarity of saying, okay, this is my responsibility. This doesn't overlap. My job doesn't like crazy overlap with other people's jobs and nobody understands what they're supposed to do and where I begin and the other person ends. It's a really, I think, important part of it. But I think the part that's around the fear and distrust that gets created in a system that's culturally based, that's the stuff 
that I think is so important and so big. And that can be a way that leaders can, I think, make change and do a better job of role modeling that. Yeah. Do a good job of being a role model for taking care of yourself as a leader. Absolutely. But how can we create less of the fear and distrust in a system by doing what you say you're going to do, by being open and honest and transparent and stopping, there's this idea of psychological contract breaches, right? Where you said you were going to do this thing and then you never did and you reneged on our agreement and I now have some resentment to you. And so that built up distrust and resentment and fear. If you can work on that, that helps everything that helps people feel much more. It's related to the psychological safety stuff, right? Like how can you create a place where what is a little bit more of what you get (laughs) and it feels honest and has integrity and there's an openness and there's not this great worry and concern that, oh my gosh, if I look at somebody wrong, I'm going to get in trouble. Or if I don't do this thing perfectly, I'm going to get fired. How do we create more of an environment where people feel like it's safe to be themselves? So there's a lot that's related to culture there that I think is really important to the burnout conversation. So anything else you want to say about your approach and culture generally, any of the other levers that you haven't had a chance to speak about, you think it's important for people to hear, and then maybe to wrap up, what is one thing, I know it's the worst thing to say, but what is one thing people can start today to start to think about culture differently? Yeah, there's so much to it, right? So it is tricky to think about one thing, but I would say be curious about it. Be curious about culture, ask questions, try to understand it. I think if we all were really more curious about it and really tried to have a little more intention around what's happening culturally, it would really help. It would help us all do better with culture if we understood it at a deeper level, and if we tried to take some steps. So I think one of the easiest things you can do if you have values in your organization is just take a look at your values and think about which ones are actually real right now, which ones are actually consistently demonstrated by everybody at your organization. A lot of times you'll find, oh yeah, this one value, oh, we absolutely do that. But the rest of your values, do you feel like there's a big gap? We're nowhere close to doing those things. That could be just like this little mini culture assessment, right? Very informal, very easy to do, where you can start to get a feel for what you might focus on. So in your work, you could say, I'm going to try to build up that one value. I'm going to focus more on how we're one team, or I'm going to focus more on people first here. So I think it's just taking those steps, asking questions, being curious, and try to just take some action of making your culture come to life. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope the podcast brings you fresh ideas, renewed confidence and energy to keep leading change. If you need a partner in these efforts, I can help you effectively build a thriving workplace culture for all. I'll help you overcome the real barriers to change you face every day and help you lead real change with evidence-based solutions. In particular, I want to work with passionate leaders who have tried and failed. 
because I know you have what it takes and your experience will help you clearly recognize the difference I can make. For a free consultation today, please visit my website at www.leading-real-change.com. That's www.leadingrealchange.com. Control your affairs.